it's good to be with you here uh, in the West Auditorium, those worshiping in the East Auditorium as well as online. Uh, if you are newer with us, my name is Brian and look forward to looking at God's word in the book of Nehemiah here today. Uh, and as we prepare for that, uh, recently I came across a poem, uh, not that I'm a big poetry guy per se, but I, it was in the introduction to a book uh, that I thought was, uh, was a helpful metaphor for what we are looking at here today. Uh, and the name of the poem uh, is called Overland to the Islands by Denise uh, Lovertov. I definitely butchered that name. Uh, that's okay. So if you're a dog lover, you might like this, uh, this little poem about how a dog uh, kind of maybe processes life a little bit. Uh, but it talks about a dog who goes, quote, intently haphazardly, sniffing and dancing over rocks and mud, disdaining nothing his nose encounters along the way, but always keeps moving changing pace and approach, but not direction, every step and arrival. Uh, and it was that line right there that grabbed my attention, this idea that every step is an arrival, uh, that as a metaphor for life and faith, that we are to keep moving, to keep going, uh, not changing direction per se, but knowing that as we kind of ping pong back and forth, we're changing paces, changing approaches, that in the midst of all that comes our way, whether you know the highs, the lows, the thick, the thin, uh, whether you have big faith or even as faith that is as small as a mustard seed, which thankfully Jesus said that's all we need, uh, that in all of it, every step, is an arrival. Every step is a moving forward. And over the last several weeks, we have been pacing our way, moving through the book of Nehemiah, with each week really being an arrival through the ups and downs of the story of Nehemiah, as we can relate to our own ups and downs, even though all the while heading on a direction, uh, we've been talking about a divine burden, that the things that God has laid on us, whether in our home lives or outside of it, to be getting after in the name of Jesus for his glory and for his purposes and for our best. And so in Nehemiah chapter six, verse three, uh, it talks about how Nehemiah is doing a great work, what God has called to. That's the name of this series, a great work, to which he says, I cannot come down from it. I cannot be detoured or derailed or distracted from that which God has called me to, wherever the path uh, in between here and that destination should look like. And if we had to boil down, you could say that journey through Nehemiah as it relates to what we're picking up and learning from Nehemiah in our own lives, that you could really take that every step and arrival to arrive at these two words. Uh, that if you're newer with us, you're like, oh man, I missed most of the series, we're gonna get you caught up with the Sparks Notes, Cliffs Notes, whatever you wanna call it, with these two words. That it is a story of rebuilding and reviving. A story of rebuilding and reviving. That for Nehemiah, he has this God-given, this divine burden to rebuild the walls of his people's city. And over the last several weeks, we've been exploring how do we pray and plan and discern and take action on what God has called us to be about in our lives. That we might, like Nehemiah, both receive and pursue that God-given goal and then achieve it. For Nehemiah, that goal was to build this wall, to rebuild a wall, uh, which was accomplished, we see in Nehemiah chapter six, in 52 days. And so with the rebuilt wall, uh, the story continues in that the wall, though it seems like that's the purpose of Nehemiah, is really just a means to the end. Let, a wall is not like the goal, per se, but it was a platform in which to do the ultimate goal, which is to revive his people, to renew God's people into a renewed commitment to God's will and ways. 
And so we kind of built the wall in the first three weeks of the series. And then last week, Pastor Rick reminded us that the foundation of anything that's going to be revived is going to come out of God's word. And so we looked at chapter 8 in Nehemiah, that all about the revival that comes to you almost, you could say, rebibling ourselves, re-anchoring ourselves in the Bible as a foundation to whatever it is that we're going to rebuild and revive in our own lives. It always starts with God's Word. You look all throughout church history, the Reformation of the 1500s, the Restoration Movement of the 1800s, of which the Christian churches we find our roots in, all came about as a result of, hey, we need to return back to where we had gone astray from the Bible as our authority on all things. And so we've turned that to you and said, okay, based on God's word and led by the Holy Spirit, how is he calling you to build and to revive something or some opportunity in your life? Uh, We talked about maybe it's a particular using of your gifts, your abilities, your talents that God's given you in whatever sphere of life that you have outside of this space to use for uh, his glory rather than through like a ministry in the church or maybe serving our community or as we've seen and and some of our friends all the way around the world. Uh, Maybe it's in your career. Maybe God is shaping and wanting to use, uh, we said in Colossians, that whatever you do, Colossians 3 says, do it as unto the Lord. So whatever your vocation, your role, your lot in life, how is God maybe calling you to rebuild and revive something within your maybe current career or vocation? Or maybe he has something altogether new that he wants to build relative to what you do uh, in the living of your life. Or I think about students uh, here in the room, you know, coming up on school and wondering, you know, with activities already starting or in your team or, you know, in the context of your friends and the peer relationships you have, what is God calling you to? What unique thing is he maybe burdened you with to be, you know, building and reviving within that setting? Uh, And I know it's the last weekend in July, so I just committed like a foul here. It's like school, that word, too soon, a little bit, Just, just a tad. Okay. All right. We'll wait till at least August. Perhaps you're here and you're on the other end of that uh, maybe life spectrum. You're not getting ready to start another year of school, but you're stepping into the phase of retirement. Uh, Just talked in the lobby with a couple who has just stepped into that, and it's a new day, and they're trying to figure out what God has for them. And, you know, I have the sense that within you there's this desire, this God-given burden to probably do more than just golf your way into the grave. Um, Don't misunderstand I love golf, played it two days ago, all for it, but what does God want to do with those unique skills and knowledge and wisdom and experiences that you have had throughout a lifetime to still do new things, to build something new, to revive something uh, in what God wants you in these special years of your life? Or maybe it's in your own home that God is calling you to kind of pay attention to rebuilding and reviving maybe a marriage that has grown distant. Or maybe parents, with the busyness of schedules and things going on, this renewed investment in your children and your relationship with them and fostering their relationship with the Lord. Uh, We said a number of weeks ago that the greatest accomplishment that God might have for you might not be something you do, but someone you raise. Or adult children. Maybe it's a rebuilt and renewed relationship with your empty nest parents. Or if we're going to talk about relationships, really it all comes down to at the end of the day or at the beginning of all these areas of life, it starts at the foundation of our relationship with the Lord our God. And maybe you're in a season where you're kind of newer uh, to church altogether or maybe new for the first time in a long time and God is stirring you to renew and rebuild your relationship with him and what that looks like so that you can build on that foundation uh, all the other areas of your life. You see, that is the business that God is in. He is in the business of rebuilding, of reviving, of renewing. 
Throughout the scriptures, we see God claiming this about himself and what he's up to. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, God speaks to him and says, behold, I am doing a new thing. And then at the end of the Bible, the last book, Revelation, uh, as we look toward the future of what's gonna happen when Jesus returns again, he says, behold, I will make all things new. And so rebuilding and reviving, it's all within the DNA, the character, the nature of who God is and what it is that we can pursue in a life of following him. And so for us, when it comes to this reality, this request, uh, we think about, um, it's the, really the prayer that we have for our lives. It's the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Uh, we pray it often around here, we call it sometimes the Lord's Prayer, that we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer to rebuild and to renew the things that are happening here on the planet, in our lives and around the world, the way that it already is perfectly done in heaven. And so as we pray that prayer, as we pursue these things in our life, as we look at Nehemiah, you could say there are three ingredients uh, from chapter one through 13 throughout the book of Nehemiah that we're gonna kind of capstone here today when it comes to, uh, you could say, effectively rebuilding and reviving in our lives. And so these three ingredients, they all begin with the letter C, uh, which makes preacher types like me super excited uh, because we are easily amused by such things. So uh, the three C's, the three ingredients for a rebuilt and revived anything in our lives. The first C is conviction. It all starts with conviction and specifically of the Holy Spirit, which is God at work in our hearts and in our lives. We see this at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter one, he is convicted. Uh, it says that he gets a report that his people and his city are in ruins and they're struggling. Verse three of chapter one, he says that they are in great trouble and disgrace. And so verse four, uh, Nehemiah says that when I heard these things, he says, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And so in these prayers, he's experiencing the conviction that he is to go and do something. And it's because of conviction that we don't have just a chapter one of Nehemiah, but that we have uh, chapters two through 13. It's through conviction that launches him into everything else that he does then get after. And so it always starts with conviction. As we look at the story of the scriptures, kind of fast forward, I wanna to go to the book of Acts here for just a minute, uh, and just to give us some context of where that at, is at. So you have Nehemiah, which is in the Old Testament, which all of that is leading up to Jesus. And so we see Jesus in what's called the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books of the New Testament. And those are four accounts, four, uh, you could say, camera angles of the same story of Jesus. And then from there, as Jesus prepares his disciples, his apostles, to start the church, the book of Acts, the fifth book in the New Testament, is where the church begins, where Jesus launches his apostles, his disciples, to start the church. We're gonna look at that in a second. And then just so you can kind of wrap this up, the whole rest of the New Testament are letters written to churches on what it looks like to do church and to be the church in the world. And so that is the whole Bible, uh, sort of, not really, kind of, uh, for us here today. But book of Acts, just to give us some context. <laughs> book of Acts chapter two. Uh, so Jesus has come. He says the Holy Spirit is gonna come with you because, you know, I'm a man and I can only be God-man. I can only be in one place one time. It's gonna be better, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit comes, and then at the beginning of Acts, Peter, one of his apostles, preaches what is really the first ever Christian sermon. 
I mean, I guess Jesus' sermons were obviously very Christian as well. But um, Peter's the first non-Jesus person to preach this message. And his closing line in that message to the people of Israel, he says this in Jerusalem. He says, therefore, this is Peter. He says, all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, by the way, so not so subtle a convicting word, uh, whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. So a very convicting word from Peter there. Uh, and real quick, just to kind of understand how they responded kind of in contemporary terms, I'm gonna need a little crowd participa- uh, participation. Uh, you know, kids, you can play at home. Uh, but I need your help in completing the lyric to this Bon Jovi song to understand what's happening here in the book of Acts, okay? Now I am no singer, and if you all leave me hanging here, you, I'll be upset, so <laughs> deliver, okay? Complete this lyric, all right? Shot through the heart, and you're to blame. You give love. That's the best service yet, wasn't it, Jonathan? It really was. Way to go. Way to go. Being hungry for lunch isn't going to stop you all. Yeah. You give love a bad name. Uh, A shot through the heart. And really, we see here that Peter, he's giving love a good name. He's giving it a new name. He's giving it the name that's above all names, the name Jesus, Savior, Jesus, Lord, Jesus, Messiah. And we see that Peter's words shot through the heart of these people in the next verse. Verse 37 says that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, uh, which is kind of the same thing. Cut to the heart, shot to the heart. Bon Jovi and I, we go way back, so he doesn't mind that I tweak his lyrics a little bit. (laughs) He and I, we went to separate high schools together, so (laughs) give it a second. You'll you'll get there. All right. (laughs) When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, uh, and the Holy Spirit, you could say, is to blame. And then they said to Peter, they responded to Peter and the other apostles, and in response to this conviction, they said, brothers, what shall we do? That conviction is never an end in and of itself. It always leads to something. We should be asking the question, when convicted, what shall we do? So it doesn't just end there. And that's where we see our second C, and that is the C of confession. That upon conviction, we then confess what is it that actually needs to change. Verse 38, uh, Peter replies, this is how you need to confess. He says to confess, to repent to turn from your ways, to turn from sin, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as we said, the gift of that Holy Spirit is God with us, in us, leading us inside of our lives and in us together. And so before you can rebuild and revive any area in your life, it starts with the foundation of Jesus and his Holy Spirit leading your life. And if you're here today and you have not yet confessed Jesus as Lord, if you have not uh, confessed that he is the son of God who forgives you of your sin and is the leader of your life, maybe you've been coming, you've been checking it out, but you're yet to make that step, well then Ephesians 2 warns us that without that confession, without that we are still dead in, we are still stuck in our transgressions and our sins, Ephesians 2 says. But today can be a different day. It can be the beginning of a new day. As Jesus said to a man by the name of Zacchaeus as recorded in Luke chapter 19, Jesus says to this man, he says, good news, today salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came for this reason, to seek and save the lost. Which means, and he says this elsewhere, he says, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world 
through me. And so we are saved from sin, its consequences, from having to live under the ways of this world and get the gift, the privilege of the one who created us also knows what's best for us in his will and ways as laid out in his word. Uh, We see this in the book of Acts later on with a guy by the name of Paul. His name was originally Saul, and it was changed to Paul upon his conversion uh, to accepting Jesus. But Paul, he who actually wrote, uh, we talked about those letters at the end of the New Testament that kind of tells us how to live this life as the church. He wrote like half of them. But before all that, he had a very dramatic conviction and confession experiences. He was actually persecuting and killing Christians. Uh, But after that experience of uh, coming to Jesus, he's in a one-on-one sermon with a guy by the name of Ananias. And Ananias says this to him. He says, and now, what are you waiting for? In kind of the same way that Peter was saying it. Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his, calling on Jesus' name. That's what baptism is. It's an Acknowledgement, it's a recognition of what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection for the gift of forgiveness and new life that we participate in our baptism, that we are, you could say, dying to self, bearing that, and raising to new life in him. That's what baptism is all about. And we're excited, actually, in two Sundays from today, August 14th, uh, in the afternoon there, we're gonna be down at uh, Lake Decatur celebrating with those in the life of our church who have confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord and are following that with water baptism. And so if you have not confessed Jesus as Lord, or if you have and you have not yet followed that in obedience to be baptized upon your profession of faith, then we would invite you to be a part of that day of celebration. We've done this a number of years now, and uh, it's a super cool thing to be a part of and share in with our church together. So come celebrate, come get baptized. Uh, We'll look forward to having you and you can find out more on the church website on how to sign up and we can talk to you about that as well. So I would say this to you, if that's where you're at, in the words of Ananias to Paul, it's not me, it's the scriptures. What are you waiting for if you've not been baptized? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. And so we see conviction, we see confession, Uh, And we see that just obviously not just in the book of Acts, but all throughout the scriptures and specifically in our book of study right now, the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Chapter nine, uh, upon conviction of the spirit of God based on the word of God that we looked at last week, chapter eight, chapter nine, verse one says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites, they gathered together in fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. And so in those days, kind of like baptism is today, in those days, a participatory practice in acknowledging and confession was putting on sackcloth and putting ashes on their heads. And so that's what Romans 6 says, that we are confessing Jesus as Lord, confessing our sin as we are baptized bury that and rise to new life. And so we see this confession, this type of confession continue in the people uh, for Nehemiah verse two. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all the foreigners and they stood in their places and it says that they confessed. They confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. You see, that is where we see following conviction and confession that we have that third C and that is the C of commitment that following conviction and confession, we then commit to what it is it actually needs to change. That we're not just hearers of the word, James says uh, later in the scriptures, but that we would be doers. What are we gonna commit to actually do? 
And so in Nehemiah, the rest of chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, it's, you can see it's all these commitments to following God's will and ways that they were reminded of and in many ways learned for the first time in chapter 8 of hearing the scriptures. Uh, chapter 9, verse 38 and so when they hear what the word says and they're making this commitment to the future, they say, in view of this, we are making a binding agreement. Okay, they're showing their commitment. We are putting it in writing. That's like a phrase we still use today. Put it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And so we see all these layers of commitment to God's will and ways. And that's why Pastor Rick last week, as we talked about the scriptures, it's so important to be regularly in the scriptures, uh, to regularly read them so that we can be aware of God's will and ways that we might actually follow them. And I'll be honest, I was convicted by that. I, my Bible reading had been kind of like, kind of blippy and bloppy, just kind of here and there. And honestly, kind of with the uh, more regular preaching, I've spent more time in the scriptures preparing sermons probably than preparing my heart. And I was convicted. And I was like, okay, I got to get back on a plan. And uh, so I'm like three days in on a year plan. We'll see how it goes, I'll tell you, uh, in the days ahead. But um, yes, convicted, committed to God's will and ways by actually being in his word is essential. Then we see chapter 10. People sign their names to this commitment, uh, which we're actually gonna have a really cool experience next week. We're gonna be signing our names to the commitments that we believe that God has put on our hearts. So it'll be a cool week next week to do that. Uh, and then verse 29, chapter 10, more commitment language. They say, we bind ourselves with a curse, like knowing there are consequences to not following God's will and ways. And with an oath that we are gonna follow the law of God, believing it's God's best for us, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey. Again, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Obey carefully all the commands and regulations and the decrees of the Lord our God. We promise. We promise. And then the next uh, several verses, the next chapter, really kind of go line by line through the kinds of things they had neglected and the commitments and promises they were making to follow God's will and ways. We promise. Uh, it's a great two-word phrase that we've probably used at various times in our life. Uh, I was thinking back on my own life and the role that promises have had. And uh, for me, when it came to promises in elementary school, uh, it turns out that uh, I discovered that each year with my teachers, I was actually my teacher's favorite student every year. And the reason I know this is because at the very beginning of the school year, very shortly into, they would get to know me a little bit and they would uh, pull my desk right next to theirs. <laughs> and I think it was just a reality that they could not resist this face. <laughs> Wouldn't you wanna sit next to that guy? But as time went on, I realized that it wasn't this face that earned me that VIP first class seat next to my teacher, it was this face. Now I'll give you like two seconds to find where's Waldo, where's Brian in this picture. Uh, I was asking my mom for, uh, yeah, childhood pictures for this and she's like, Brian, she said, this is when we actually used to have to like pay for every developed photo and like silly faces wasn't even a thing. You just were annoying and would do it every time anyway. And so it was this face that got me put next to the teacher's desk, I discovered. But that didn't come with no costs. I mean, there was, there was a level, there was a, um, a price I had to pay to be able to have that privilege, uh, or maybe her privilege to hit to sit next to me. Uh, and that was, quite often, through a promise, a commitment. Uh, one promise that I recall uh, from a number of years ago was the promise, I said, I, I promise uh, not to pull Elizabeth's chair out from her 
when she sits down. That was one of my promises. And to ensure that I was committed to this promise, my teacher had me fix my seal to it, put it in writing, a binding agreement of writing that statement 25 times on a sheet of notebook paper. Uh, and so anyone who's ever served that consequence, you know how this goes, right? You get your sheet of notebook paper and you, you, you write this out. So the first word is, it's a, I promise. So I, you start at the top. And yeah, that's right. I already see you all, some of you are like, oh yeah, I know. Just straight down, 25 lines. Get that I knocked out. And I've learned if you really want to take it to the next level, you don't have to write the rest of the sentence. It's actually a lot quicker. Just be like, promise, 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 promise. You know, not, 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 two, two, two. So you, it, it's a much more efficient way to deliver that commitment, that promise uh, that you are on the hook for students should this come your way. I don't know if they still do that anymore. But anyway, if I'm honest, uh, and it's probably not a real surprise to you, that the commitment I was making in the redundancy of writing the statement 25 times or others many times like it uh, was a little light uh, because the commitment didn't actually come out of a confession that was rooted in a genuine conviction. It was a little hollow, a little light. It wasn't actually a commitment because it starts with actual conviction, actual confession, of which we then have a commitment. And I would suspect that you're here at some level because you are minimally, I would say, at least interested in that commitment, if not fully committed in your life already when it comes to the building of your faith in your life. And really, this is such an important topic to understand what is it uh, that fuels that kind of faith, that moves us from just maybe not interested to interested to actually committed to a faith that serves us for a lifetime. Uh, we're actually going to spend a five-week series here, the week after next, uh, looking at just that topic. How do we get a faith that is worth pursuing and building into this life? The name of the series is called Fuel. And it's going to look at the five factors that fill your faith. And as we think about this, I, th I think about like people maybe in your life who you admire their faith. Uh, maybe you, you've seen them like experience maybe like the worst of the worst things and the you know the deepest darkest trials and their faith seems to be uh, ironically not lessened but even stronger. And you're like, man, how do they have that faith? And and maybe even asking the question like, how could I get a faith like that? Or as you even think about your story to date of where your faith, maybe you feel like you have a little or medium or a lot or whatever, that as we were to look at your story of what has brought you this far, that there would be no less than one of these factors, maybe all five, that have been a part of your faith development. And so we wanna look specifically at what those five factors are. And please hear me, not as like a formula for faith, like that sounds awful, uh, but more to be aware of these five factors that are a part of every story or should be, so that you can at least be aware of it, notice it, and then grab hold of it to be intentional to, you could say, fuel and fill up your faith that can serve you for a lifetime until we need it no longer because we're on the other side of eternity in heaven. And so we're looking forward uh, to that series here starting in a couple weeks, uh, fuel the five factors that fill your faith. Uh, but one of the things we see is that's certainly taking place for the people in Nehemiah's day. They are getting after it. They are wanting to fuel their faith based on God's word in chapter eight. They are convicted, they are confessing, and they are committed to the Lord. And you can tell, I mean, there's a lot of verses about how they were committing and signing their names and binding it with oaths and recognizing there's curses and all this stuff. So this was like top shelf. This was scout's honor, pinky promise, triple dog daria with a cherry on top level of commitment that the people of God were making. And if I was a good preacher, I'd probably just stop there, just let it end with a bow on it. Let's commit and move forward because that's what we're supposed to do. But 
there's a little bit of a PS at the end of this. That the interesting thing, if you've read to the end of Nehemiah, it doesn't end with, let's commit to the Lord, let's go, that's the end. It actually ends with chapter 13 of the people failing. The book ends with the people actually failing to keep this commitment that they were so adamant about. Um, Chapter 13, verse 25, actually shows Nehemiah. He comes back and hears what's happening, that they're not living up to their commitment, and he kind of loses his cool, just, just a skosh here. Verse 25, it says that Nehemiah, he says, I came in and I rebuked them. I called curses down on them. And then I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. I haven't seen that verse on a coffee mug. It's not on Etsy. It's like, what? strange correction practices. It seems that maybe Nehemiah had a few issues of his own, even as he's straightening out some issues of some others. And then it gets kind of interesting. Like, the last verse of the last chapter of Nehemiah is like this, like, kind of like, oh, well, uh, chapter 13, verse 31, Nehemiah says, well, God, at least would you remember me with favor, my God? The end. Because he's thinking, I guess, at least I gave it a shot. This whole rebuild and revive thing, God, I gave it the old college try. Um, And it's really interesting because the end of the book at the end of Nehemiah is very, very anticlimactic. Uh, It doesn't end with a bow on it. It's not happily ever after and honestly not even close. And I kind of like it. I kind of like it because Honestly, if we're honest, outside of a, again, maybe a sermon or a service with a bow on the end that goes happily ever after, we know that this side of eternity, not all of our life stories do end that way. Even if we're doing something God's called us to and doing a good work and a great work, we're not coming down from it, uh, whatever that is in your life, that the ups and the downs, that sometimes this side of eternity, it doesn't get resolved. It doesn't end with a bow. Uh, Now, don't misunderstand. God is absolutely with you in the midst of those ups and downs. We're reminded of, you know, Psalm 23, that famous psalm where it says, you know, Lord, you are my shepherd and you walk with me through the darkest valley. Uh, Or older translations say, through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, Jesus' own words in John 16, 33, he reminds us, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace, the peace of God, because in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I will fix all your problems in this world. No, that's not how it goes. It says, take heart, I have overcome the world, that I am with you in this world when the world turns against you. In this fallen and this broken world, we need to know, you need to know, and if you don't know, you need to know, because you'll be quickly disenfranchised with what the Christian life is actually about. It's not about, you mean, read, when you read the story of scripture, you don't see a lot of characters, everything going up and to the right and smoothly. It's through the ups and the downs, God is with them. And so we need to know that not every story and situation does come to full resolution this side of eternity, which sounds disappointing initially, but quickly we must be reminded of what that means for what the truest reality is in the full story that isn't over yet. Going back to the full story of the scriptures, the Old Testament, it all points to the coming of Jesus and then Jesus and his church and the Old and New Testament all ultimately point to the reality of coming soon. Jesus does come back, he returns, Revelation 21, five, when he will make all things new, where there'll be no more pain, no more tears, there'll be no more striving and trying because he will make all things right and make all things new. 
And so may we, as we understand kind of that tension of, yes, we already have God at work within our lives now, but it's not fully realized until eternity, that we would pray. That reality that Jesus taught us, that your kingdom come, your will be done right here in whatever situations that we face, whatever burden, whatever we're calling us to rebuild and revive, uh, may it come right here on earth, reminding us it is a gift of heaven until it is fully realized on the other side of actually heaven itself. And so with that tension in mind, I wanna pray for us and pray for you for what God is rebuilding and reviving for his kingdom to come, his will to be done in your life just as it is in heaven. And so let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the honesty of your word uh, that you reflect in the realities of telling the truth in these stories, uh, that if we're honest with ourselves, the truths of so many stories that we experience here while on the planet. Um, yes, we get that uh, everything does not get worked out uh, perfectly this side of eternity. We are thankful and we anticipate and we look forward to when that day will come. But for now, God, as we sang a little earlier, uh, a foretaste, the first fruits of your kingdom being made and being brought into the living of our lives by the gift of your Holy Spirit who still is at work in our lives today. We thank you for it. And so may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, rebuild and revive all that you've called us to in this life by starting on a foundation of a rebuilt and revived and alive relationship with you. We thank you that you are with us by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Your kingdom come by your power and for your glory. Amen.